Thank you, team. Now, wasn't that a wonderful song? And to think, as I told you before, it was written by a 19-year-old. And, you know, in some ways, that kind of captures the vision that we would like to have for the children's ministry. Not that our kids would be able to write songs as awesome as that, although it would be nice, but that our kids wouldn't just sing this song, but live this song. I am not my own. I belong to the Lord. And so to that end, uh, the Children's Ministry Leadership Group would like to invite all the teach. Is it teachers? And assistants of Ablaze and Ignite. Yes, all the teachers and assistants of Ablaze and Ignite classes to a roundtable next Sunday after the service. It'll be your chance to talk about how things are going in your classes, what you think can be improved, some of the challenges you've faced, because we would really want to improve the way we teach our kids. Because we would love for them to understand the greatness of our God so that they would not just sing this song, but live it. Okay? So next week, teachers and assistants in a blaze and ignite, please plan to be part of that roundtable and bring your own lunch, right? All right. And maybe something to share. <laughs> but I don't teach those classes. On va voir. All right. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And we'll consider verse 4 to verse 56. Our call to worship this morning tells us, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, that's an awesome truth, right? But let's admit, be still and know that I am God is easier said than done. I remember I was waiting to recover for, from myasthenia gravis for 18 months, and I was too weak to do anything. But be still? Oh, man. Even if I was just lying in bed, it was hard to be still. Because we all understand it's hard to trust in God. Psalm 46 tells us God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Well, that's not always the case, is it? So we, we can relate to the disciples who were with Jesus in this passage, but who were panicking in the midst of the storm. Let's read verse 16 up to verse 25 to bring us into this text. Luke chapter 8, verse 16 to verse 25. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. 
For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Now you notice that there are two questions in that section. Jesus asked the question, where is your faith? And the disciples asked the question, who then is this? And those two questions capture the message of Luke chapter 8, verse 4 to, chapter, to verse 56. Jesus' question, where is your faith, looks back on his two parables that challenge us to hear him properly. The first parable Jesus tells is a very familiar parable to us. It's called the parable of the sower, or perhaps more properly, the parable of the soils. In chapter 8, verse 5, he tells a gathering crowd, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And yet, sadly, the, the disciples of Jesus did not understand the parable. And so they asked him to explain in verse 9. And Jesus tells them, um, you know, parables both reveal and conceal. It's not that the disciples were smarter than anyone else. In fact, if you've been reading through Luke and as you continue through Luke, you'll find that uh, somehow they're not much smarter than anybody. They're like the elders. You, you remember our <laughs> less said, better. <laughs> you know, the only reason why the disciples understand is that Jesus explains the parables to them. It's His grace that makes the difference. As Thomas Schreiner would put it, the disciples know the secrets of the kingdom because of God's sovereign will, His gracious decision. The outsiders are not given the explanation which opens up the meaning of the parable. 
Luke draws on Isaiah 6-9 in which the Lord commissions Isaiah to say, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Parables are told so that the people may see without grasping what they see. They may hear without comprehending what they hear. And that dynamic is demonstrated in the parable of the soils. Jesus, in the parable of the soils, is talking about how different people respond to God's word, which he identifies as the seed in verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And your response to the word of God reveals your heart, the kind of soil that you are. And please understand, he is not talking about your response moment by moment. This is not a, well, today I'm hard, tomorrow I'm going to be thorny. No, that's not the way it goes. He is talking about your overall response to the gospel throughout your life. Some people reject the gospel outright. That's the seed along the path. Some people embrace the gospel for a while, but then they give up following Jesus when it gets difficult. That's the seed on rocky soil, and um, we've seen a lot of that. Or the gospel gets crowded out by competing priorities. That's the seed among thorns. Again, we've seen a lot of that. The only people who really have genuine faith are those who, verse 15, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus is saying that persevering fruit-bearing is the hallmark of true faith. And it's not something we produce of ourselves. True saving faith is a gift that comes from God. And that's why he tells his disciples in verse 10, to you it has been given. Implicitly, it has been given by God to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And Jesus then moves on. He doubles down on our responsibility to hear and obey God's word with another parable the image of lighting a lamp and putting it on a stand instead of hiding it under a bed. And what Jesus is saying is that Scripture, God's Word, shows us God's ways and sheds its light on our lives. The challenge is in verse 18. We are to take care how we hear. See, when we submit to God's Word... We receive more truth. We understand Scripture better as we put it into practice. Or you could put it this way. If you want to understand, you must stand under the Word of God. But when we reject the truth, we lose what truth we think we know. Look at verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And what's at stake is more than the satisfaction of gaining knowledge. The reason we must submit to Scripture is that obedience is integral to our relationship 
with Jesus. That's the point that Luke is making in verse 19 up to verse 21. When he records Jesus' family trying to come to Jesus but being stymied by the crowd. When Jesus tells Jesus, when, when, when someone tells Jesus they're standing outside, he says, My mother and my brothers, verse 21, are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, mind you, he's not disowning them. He considers them still to be family, but he is redefining the boundaries of his family. Jesus is saying that he embraces those who hear the word of God and do it as his own family. Genuine faith brings us into God's forever family. And genuine faith is demonstrated by hearing and doing God's word. You cannot separate faith from obedience. Following Jesus will involve sacrifice. But if you're part of his forever family, he gives us far more than we could ever lose. Which begs the question, why should I trust Jesus? And that brings us to the question that the disciples asked. Who then is this? And so Luke answers that question, why should we trust him, with four desperate situations that are miraculously resolved by Jesus. So verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake, to Gentile country. And as they were sailing, he took a nap. I mean, he's not sailing. The fishermen's got it. I can nap. But while he was sleeping, a powerful storm arose that was threatening to capsize their boat. I, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. Ever, anyone be, been in a stormy boat? Yeah? Fun, right? <laughs> Very much. I mean, I remember I was with uh, four classmates, and we were on a boat, and there was a storm, and the boatman said, we can make it to the shore. Uh, and I said, okay, let's go. And as we were, say, we were, we were in that, it, it was a, basically a canoe with outriggers and a motor. And as we were going, the storm kicked up again, and the waves were pretty high, and we were bouncing around. One of my classmates started looking around, thinking, can I swim to that island? The other classmate thought, I'm going to, when we, when we capsize, I'm going to hang on to the boat, and I will be saved. Another classmate looked at me and said, RJ, we need to turn back. And I'm like, we're halfway there. <laughs> There's no point. <laughs> when, we got to the, when we got to where we were going, she had a meltdown, but, you know, what can you do? <laughs> and I, I was okay because the boatman was still calm. But when he said to me, hey, can you start bailing out <laughs> because the motor might stop, that's when I got scared. <laughs> now, when, when seasoned fishermen are running to a carpenter for help, you know you're in trouble, right? And that's exactly what's going on here. You know the situation's desperate because they're saying to Jesus, Master, Master, we are perishing. 
And verse 24 says, And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Imagine that. Even the forces of nature obeyed Jesus instantly. And then he challenged them, Where is your faith? And if the disciples were scared of the storm, you realize they were even more afraid after the storm. Look at verse 25. And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Because they recognize that only God could control the forces of nature. Psalm 107, 23 to 29 says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They were down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. I mean, that's classic Peter, James, and John, right? They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. That's exactly what happened. Only God could do this. And that's why Jesus deserves our trust. Because he is Lord over land and sea and sky. He made them. They cannot but obey His word. He is in control. He is mighty to save. Now the disciples' question, who then is this, is answered in the most unlikely way, on the other side of the lake, in Gentile territory. Luke tells us in verse 27, when Jesus had stepped on land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This demon-possessed man gives the best answer to who is this. He recognizes that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Jesus is God in the flesh. But here's the sad part. This man who had terrorized the countryside and whom no man could control was in such desperate straits he could not even ask for help from Jesus. The presence of Jesus just brought him pain. He could only fall down before Jesus and beg, do not Torment me. Now Jesus asked the demon his name and we realize the magnitude of what's going on here. He says his name is Legion. Now a legion in the Roman army was 5,000 soldiers. So you realize that this isn't one-on-one. This is Jesus against 5,000 demons maybe. He's facing an army of demons and they don't stand a chance. They, they can only beg, let us enter this herd of pigs nearby instead of casting out, us out into the abyss. 
Jesus gives them permission. The pigs promptly rush into the lake and drown. The herdsmen run away. I mean, they, they're accountable for these pigs. So they tell the people in the city what happened. And when the people came to investigate, look at verse 35. Imagine the scene before and imagine what's going on right now. Verse 35. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Why can we trust Jesus? Well, we can trust him because no opponent is stronger than Jesus. Not even a legion of demons. And when Jesus works in our life, we become truly sane and rational. For the first time in our lives, we are truly in our right mind about life. But sadly, we're often afraid to approach Jesus. Daryl Bach notes, The people who ask Jesus to leave their region recognize his power but are afraid to be too close to him. Many fear divine accountability, preferring to be left on their own and to fend for themselves. They regard Christianity as a crutch, but I wonder if in fact there is a failure to recognize where real weakness resides. Now the man from whom the demons had been cast out knows better. He has experienced Jesus' saving grace that rescued him from demonic control, delivered him from shame, and gave him a new identity. And so as Jesus is leaving, this man begs, Jesus, let me go with you. But instead, Jesus restores him to his society with renewed purpose. He tells him, return to your home, verse 39, and declare how much God has done for you. And this man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. In his proclamation, he recognizes that God is at work in Jesus and he is faithful to obey Jesus. From a man who was out of control to a man who is under Jesus' control. Jesus had truly transformed this man. But here's the thing. The prospect of being transformed can be a very scary proposition. We're not in control. And very often, we're not even sure that the changes that God will make are good for us. And so, all too often, you and I, we resist change, don't we? We need to remember what the beavers told the Pevensey children about Aslan. Aslan is a lion, the great, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is what we need to realize. Jesus is not safe. But he is good. We don't need to be afraid of what Jesus is doing in our lives. He knows what's best for us. And he is determined to do it. And we see Jesus' goodness as he exerts his power in two more desperate situations. So the people on the Gentile side tell Jesus to leave. And so he and his disciples return to the Galilean side. And when they get there, a synagogue leader named Jairus pushed through the waiting crowd and he fell at Jesus' feet. He is desperate because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. Who's 12 around here? Close to 12? The mind of a 12-year-old? <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Imagine having a 12-year-old daughter who is about to die. Doctors can't do anything. The only hope you have is this miracle worker named Jesus. And Jesus consents to go with him. But as Jesus made his way through the crowd, a woman who was just as desperate as Jairus snuck up behind Jesus. This woman had had a continuous discharge of blood for 12 years, as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. She had spent all her money on doctors. She had endured their cures to no avail. She was broke, and she was isolated from people because her flow of blood made her ceremonially unclean. And being unclean, she couldn't even approach Jesus. So she came up behind him, verse 44, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And she tried to slip away unnoticed. But Jesus is far too kind to allow her to settle for mere physical healing. He wanted much more for her. So he said, who, who is it that touched me? And Peter, being Peter, said, Jesus, people are around you. Like, everybody's touching you. But Jesus insisted, no, 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 someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Put yourself in the shoes of this woman. She was probably scared of what Jesus would do. Maybe he'll take it back. But much to her relief and surprise, Jesus tells her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, in, in calling her out publicly, Jesus was restoring her to her community, to the embrace of her community by letting them know this woman is no longer unclean. She's been healed. It's okay now to engage with her. 
But also, Jesus wanted to dispel any superstitious notions that merely touching him would bring healing. I mean, mean, Jesus is not a magic talisman. He's not a lucky rabbit's foot. He heals those who trust in him. And more importantly, Jesus was bringing this woman into relationship with him. Notice how he calls her daughter, even if this woman was probably older than Jesus. He calls her daughter to signify that she was now part of his forever family. This desperate, destitute woman wasn't simply healed physically. Jesus also healed her soul. That's why he tells her, go in peace. That's true wholeness received by grace through faith alone. That is Jesus exercising his mighty power in all his goodness. Now that's great, isn't it? But there's somebody who's really, really frustrated at this point in time. Like Jairus is probably just saying, come on, lady. Couldn't this wait? His daughter was still dying and time was slipping by. In fact, look at verse 49. Again, put your shoes in the put yourself in the shoes of Jairus. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It was too late. His only daughter was gone forever. But look at the kindness of Jesus. Verse 50. Jesus reassured him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. What an ask, right? The situation was impossible. But what else could Jairus do? Jesus goes with Jairus to the house and he tells the mourners, verse 52, do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping. And the mourners, these are professional mourners. They're called out every time somebody dies. They're there to cry and wail. They are experts. They know the difference between mostly dead and all dead. You can't fool them. And so when they laugh at Jesus, they know this girl's all dead. But Jesus, in his goodness, would not be dissuaded. Look at verse 53. But taking the girl by the hand, Jesus called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Imagine that. Even the finality of death could not resist Jesus' command. And that's why he can demand our trust. There is no situation beyond his ability. Now, surprisingly, in verse 56, Jesus charged Jairus and his wife to tell no one what had happened. You see, the raising of Jairus' daughter was just a foreshadowing of what Jesus would accomplish. In his goodness, he didn't just come to raise the dead. 
He came to give eternal life. A life of intimate relationship with God. And he would give this kind of life by laying down his life. He suffered death that he might purchase our forgiveness and reconcile us to God. And he himself overcame death. And his resurrection signals that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And in rising again, he has brought in the new creation that will be consummated when he returns. Death is defeated. Sin is conquered. We have new life in relationship with God. And we look forward to the consummation of all that Jesus accomplished. So because of Jesus, we have hope even in the most desperate of circumstances. And so as we close, I invite you, let's come unto Jesus. Let's entrust ourselves to him. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your issue, whatever your problem, entrust yourselves to Jesus. Let's entrust ourselves to Jesus as a church with all of the challenges we have, reaching out to the community, paying for the building, hiring a new associate, moving forward in ministry here in Guelph. These are things beyond our ability. But Jesus calls us to entrust ourselves to him because he is Jesus. He's worthy of our trust. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you that you've brought us into relationship with you through the sacrifice of your Son. We thank you for Jesus who lovingly gave himself for us. And so now we have the assurance that Paul speaks of he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so, Father, we, we pray, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our misplaced focus. Forgive us for trusting in anything and everything but our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are here who are strangers to your grace, who have not put their faith in Christ. Father, we ask that you would open their eyes to see the glory, the majesty, the beauty of Jesus, that they too may trust in him and know the joy of being right with you. And we pray for ourselves, we who have trusted in Christ, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, and we thank you that you bring us through difficult circumstances precisely so that we might learn that we can't handle things on our own and that our only hope is to be found in you and you alone. Lord, teach us the wisdom of entrusting ourselves to you. This is pray in Christ's name. Amen.